You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, friends. It's good to see you guys. I, I like all of you a lot. Thanks for being here. Uh, growing up, I had a really fun habit. It was called fighting with my younger brother. And uh, those of you that are siblings in the room, I'm sure can't relate. I'm sure all of you live peaceful and quiet lives. But that's not always the way that it was in the Levitt home. We fought a decent amount. And when we were really little, this fighting would manifest itself in how we treated each other over our toys. So Matt would be playing with a toy that I really wanted, or vice versa. And no matter how many other toys existed in the world at that moment, we both needed that same toy. Right? It didn't matter what other options we had. We both needed that one. And so we would wrestle, we'd whine, we'd complain. Our parents would have to come and referee and break us up. But one day, my brother figured out how to beat me. See, Matt, that's my younger brother, from early on in life loved water. He loved baths, and as soon as he could learn how to swim, he learned. He actually learned how to swim before I did, even though I'm the older brother in our relationship. And he learned that if he was playing with the toy that I wanted, he could make a beeline for the pool and jump in, and I wouldn't jump in after him. Because I didn't like the feeling of being wet, I liked the comfort of dryness, and so I'd chase him, but as soon as I got to the edge of the pool, I'd stand right on the corner and refuse to jump in. He'd have this force field of water around him, like a, a moat to his castle. And I'd go and complain to my mom, and she probably laughed at me, because this is a hilarious situation, and I'd go back to Matt, and I'd see the toy that I was longing for, the thing that I wanted right in front of me. But I didn't want to risk the comfort of my dryness in order to jump in and get it. Today, we're starting a new sermon series here at the Spring Midtown. We're calling it Radical Faith. And we're going to be looking for the next six weeks at the story of a guy named Abram. Uh, we get his story early on in the book of Genesis. And we're going to examine what his story of faith tells us today in the 21st century, what we can learn from this guy who lived a long, long time ago. And today, we're going to chat a little bit about how God's call to faith in our lives asks us to risk our comfort, asks us to jump into the pool. And on the other side of jumping in, we get the life that we've been longing for all along. We get the toy that we've been longing for all along. Turn with me in a Bible, if you have one, to the book of Genesis. Uh, it's right near the beginning, the first book of your Bibles, so don't flip too far. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. We're also going to have the verses up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sarai, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. 
with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right at the start of this passage here, we're introduced to this dude, Abram. But we don't have a whole ton of context as to who he is, uh, where he's come from. Uh, he's right in the middle of this Genesis story. And so I actually think it's a little bit helpful to step back and remember where the story started. We're not too far from the beginning of this whole thing. Back in Genesis 1, we learn that God created a good world. And that world was teeming with life and possibility for new life. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we learn that humans were made uh, to cultivate the life that existed and to bring about new life, new flourishing. Humans were supposed to be connected to God's presence. They're supposed to cultivate things like peace and justice in the world. They're supposed to bring order out of chaos. They're supposed to create new life through families and, and through having babies. But humans in this story, in chapter 3, choose not to participate with God. They actually choose to disconnect from God's presence. They choose to say, you know what, we're actually going to take this freedom that you've given us and we're going to use it a different way. And Genesis gives us constant reminders of how humans have shifted their status from being cultivators of life to eliminators of life. Genesis 1 through, well, 3 through 11 gives us all sorts of ugly depictions of this severing from the source of life in God. We get things like murder, evil runs rampant. And this sort of stuff happens all throughout the New Testament as well. And that can make us a little squeamish sometimes in our modern world. I know uh, many folks who read the Bible and think, how is this happening in a holy book? This seems really evil, really dark. But we have to remember that these narratives are meant to be uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. They're not supposed to tell us how things are to be. They're supposed to tell us how things are. And they're supposed to remind us that those things are not the way that they should be. They're supposed to point us back to that Genesis 1 and 2 picture. We're learning all throughout the violence in Genesis that humans have forgotten the partnership with God that they were made for. They've disconnected from the source of life, and in doing that, they've emphasized their own power, their own control, and it's led to death. And the Bible uses this ancient form of writing called a genealogy. It's existed for a long time. We have them today. Their genealogies were a little bit different than Ancestry.com for us. They had purposes behind them. The names were specific, and the lifetimes were specific. Genealogies were used in Genesis to tell us how far people have gotten from the source of life. That with each passing generation, death has become more and more prevalent. And just before chapter 12 here in chapter 11, we get a genealogy. This genealogy tells us where Abram came from. So now we get the context of where we're at in the story. Abram's dad was a guy named Terah. And Terah was from the family of Noah. Some of you might remember the story of Noah, Noah's Ark. Noah was someone who, in the middle of a broken world, who had forgotten God. Noah was somebody who remembered God. He was somebody who walked with God, and his family walked with God. They were kind of the one shining hope in the narrative for God to continue to bring life and flourishing. And so Noah's family was held up in esteem in this narrative. The whole idea was that Noah's family would be the one that God would work through to restore what had been broken. And generation by generation, that failed to happen. The genealogy serves to remind us that generation by generation, as people got farther from Noah, they also got farther from God. And we learn later in the Old Testament narrative, the book of Joshua tells us that Terah and Abram, they worshipped other gods. Their family, who was descendants of Noah, who were people who were part of this family, who was supposed to bring life and flourishing, who knew God, even they had forgotten. 
And then we find, on top of all of that in this story, if that's not bad enough, right, if the one hope of a family has fallen away from God, we also learn that Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. She can't have kids. And so this isn't just true metaphorically. This is also true literally, physically, uh, anatomically for them in this space. Life can't seem to come from this family. No matter how hard they try, death now reigns. That's what chapter 11 tells us in the story. There's a theologian named Walter Brueggemann who I think really puts it aptly and concisely. He says it this way. The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. This text tells us that there is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end. It's over. That's Genesis 11. That's where we are in this story. When we get Genesis 12, we are coming from a chapter that says everything is ended. The hope of life is gone. And then God speaks. In Genesis chapter 12, when all hope has been lost, God speaks. And this is a reminder to us that even in the darkest parts of human history, God is always wooing and calling people back to life. God has never given up on the restoration of life. God has not given up on any of you. He's not given up on this world. God continues to speak and woo us back to him, woo us back to that Genesis 1 and 2 picture of life. And that means that our lives always have to be lived in a bit of a tension. Because when we look around the world, it seems like it's full of irreparable brokenness. Political divisions, hard times at work, a pandemic that just doesn't seem to go away. Brokenness fills our lives, and yet, we also live in a world in which God is always calling us back to him, in which God is always wooing us to live a different sort of story and is calling us into that story. And God's call to Abram here does the same thing. His call to Abram mainly is to risk his comfort so that he could participate in a greater story than the one the world has given him in a story that brings about redemption and restoration. And he calls him to risk his comfort in three main ways. Uh, he calls him to risk his, risk his comfort through his identity, through his control, and through his trust. And I want to look at each of those individually, because I think they all have something to teach us today in the 21st century. So first, Abram risks his comfort through his identity. Notice where God is calling Abram to leave from. He calls him to leave his family, leave his land, and leave his father's house, which some of you may have in your version, inheritance, something along those lines. It functionally means all that he is due because of his family status. Now, we live in a pretty individualistic culture. Most of us would define ourselves by what we do individually, right? By our political beliefs, by our sexuality, uh, by our uh, work, by our career. We define ourselves based on what we do. But in Abram's culture, you were defined and your identity was always rooted in your family in your tribe. It was not an individualistic society, it was a collectivistic society, which meant that God calling Abram to leave his land, family, and inheritance here meant God was calling him to leave every worldly identity behind. Everything that the world gives you, everything that the world says defines you, you have to leave those things if you're gonna be a part of this new story. God is calling Abram beyond the trappings of his worldly identity so that he can be a participant in his story. And the call of God in our lives is regularly one that does the same thing for us. 
It's regularly one that forces us to evaluate the identities that the world gives us, the identities that we accept from the world, and test if those are really the identities we're called to have. All of the ways that our culture defines us become subject to the way of God in our lives. And so the question for us becomes, what are the lands, what are the families, what are the inheritances that we have in our lives? That is, what are the cultural identity markers that keep us, that stop us, that hinder us from participating in God's story of redemption and restoration? Maybe it's our wealth, right? Maybe it's our political party. Maybe it's our career. Maybe it's just simply the comfort of living in the Western world, where most of us are wealthier than most people have been throughout the rest of world history. If we have any, any cultural identities that hinder us from following Jesus or keep us from living the life we were made to live, God has called us to leave those things behind, just as he did Abram. And Jesus calls us to this as well. You guys might remember the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, this is one that, Jesus, that we learn in the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus encounters a young man who's fairly wealthy. And it was probable that his family was wealthy as well, right? His identity was very clearly tied into his status and wealth in his culture. And this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, interesting, well, live out the Torah, live with God, follow God, know him, and live out these commands, and then you'll get life. And the rich young ruler responds, well, I've done all of those things, which is curious, right? If he knew what he had to do to inherit eternal life, and he chose to do it, why is he asking the question here? He's implying that checking off the moral checklist and having the right worldly identity and status wasn't enough. He realized after doing all of those things that he still had this deep inner longing to know God and walk with God. And so he says, I've done all those things. And Jesus says, oh. And one of my favorite authors, Emily, reminded me of this last night, Henry Nouwen. He says that Jesus looked on him with love. And Jesus said, give away everything you have. That's the one thing that's left for you. Give it all to the poor and follow me. Because Jesus knew that no matter what that man did, no matter the moral checklist that he checked off, his identity was still wrapped up in his wealth. It was still wrapped up in what the world said about him. And the rich young ruler walked away discouraged because he realized that following God was not simply compartmentalizing my religion. It was a giving over of myself to a restorative power in my life that changes every part of who I am. There's a guy named Frederick Beekner who puts this really well. I've been hooked on Beekner lately. Uh, he says this, you cannot become human on your own. Surely that is why, in Jesus' sad joke, the rich man has as hard a time getting into paradise as the camel through the needle's eye. Because with his credit card in his pocket, the rich man is so effective at getting for himself everything he needs that he does not see that what he needs more than anything else in the world can only be had as a gift. He does not see that the one thing a clenched fist cannot do is accept. And it's only in giving up his worldly identity that Abram actually can receive the life that God has for him. It's only in giving up all of these trappings of the world that define him that he can actually start to get the life that he was made for. And it's the same thing in our lives. We have to ultimately give up our worldly identities. We have to give up the things that we're clenching our fists around so that we can receive the life that God has for us through his redemptive and restorative work in his spirit. And that's hard to hear. It's a hard teaching. That's why the rich young ruler walked away discouraged, right? Because this means that we have to give something up. We do. We have to give something up to follow Jesus. 
But notice, on the other end of Abram giving those things up here, he gets something as well. We have this weird thing in Christian circles or in our understanding of Christianity that thinks that Jesus has just arrived to uh, get rid of things in our lives. He's just arrived to pull the rug out from under us. And all the things we really want or like to do, the ways our hearts and minds go, Jesus is trying to rob us of those things. But that's not the story. Jesus is actually saying those things that you're holding onto, the things that you're grasping tightly onto, that's not where real life is found. And I have real life for you, but you have to give those things up. You can't hold both of them in tandem. And in this story, Abram gives those things up and gets far more than he had before. He gives up his land, but he gets a much more fertile and expansive land in Canaan. He gives up his family, but he gets another family that expands to the ends of the earth. He gives up his inheritance, but he gets a name that lasts for centuries. Abram, or Abraham, as he becomes. Don't get confused by the name. Name changes happen in the Bible sometimes. Tim Keller says that Abram just means dad. Abraham just means daddy, right? One dad, one big daddy, that's the idea here. Abraham just means father of many. Abram means father. Abram, or Abraham, is the father of a multitude of faiths. There are billions of people across the world right now who look to the example of Abraham, who remember his name as an example of faith. This man's name has lasted centuries, millennia. God has made his name great. This promise has come true here. And I think the same thing is true in our lives. I've seen it in my life. The things that I have to leave behind in order to follow Christ, they pale in comparison to what I get on the other end. We spend our days grasping and holding on to things that we think will give us life, and Jesus says that the only way to true life is to release those things and to receive him instead. There's a story that I think illustrates this really well. It's about a guy named Frank. Frank lived in Italy in the 12th century, a while back. And Frank grew up pretty wealthy. His parents were wealthy, and uh, he spent exorbitantly. He loved parties. Uh, he loved poetry and music. Uh, he loved wearing fancy clothes. And yet, deep within himself, in the middle of that wealth, he had this longing that he couldn't quite shake. He wasn't sure where it came from. He wasn't sure why it was there, but it was there. And he felt that those worldly things really weren't enough to sustain him. And one day, he was selling garments, clothing, in his hometown marketplace, and a beggar walked by. And he was going from tent to tent asking people if they could uh, lend him anything, give him anything. And uh, Frank was hanging out, talking to somebody else. He was selling some garments. But he noticed the beggar walk by and then out of sight. And eventually, when he finished this business deal, Frank looked around at his tent. He looked at the money that he had. And he felt filled with conviction. And so he ran after that beggar, and he gave him everything he had all of the proceeds that he had earned, every part of this wealthy lifestyle that he had on his person, he gave away. And then he went home to his dad, and his dad scolded him and beat him. And he went to his friends, and his friends scoffed at him and laughed at him. They said, you've given away everything. You've given away the world. You've given away your wealth. Every part of your identity, you've tossed aside. But Frank felt something that he had never felt with all of that money. He felt a deep connection to the love and grace of God. And Frank knew that regardless of what the world said about who he was, he would be a different sort of person. He would give up the trappings of his life so that he could follow God. And he became a monk. We know him as St. Francis. 
St. Francis of Assisi. He's one of the most esteemed Christians uh, that we have in church history. He's remembered by so many people across the world. The story of Abram, the story of the rich young ruler, the story of Francis, is to recognize that every part of our lives is subject to God's way of redemption and restoration. Every part of who we are is subject to this new story when we follow him. And friends in this room, you may not be called to leave your hometown and walk hundreds of miles. You may not be called to give everything you have away and live a life of poverty, but you are certainly called to be willing to leave something. You are called to be willing to leave something behind. There's no life of discipleship to Christ that comes without a change in our identities. But on the other side of that giving something away, we also receive something greater than we could ever expect. So that's the first way that Abram risks his comfort in this story. He risks his identity. But he doesn't stop there. Notice he also risks his control. Did you see at the start of the story, God only calls him to leave? He doesn't tell him where he's going right away. It doesn't happen until much later in the story. God functionally says, hey, you have to leave this stuff behind, and I'll show you as we go what it's going to look like. And Abram has to well, give up his control of where they're going. And this is not just a walk in the park. This is not just a walk down the street. I actually have a map that I wanted to share with you guys just to illustrate how far this distance really is. And I have a fancy laser pointer, which is really cool. Super helpful. Because I'm not quite tall enough to get up to Haran up there. So Abram and his family start in this little city called Ur. And they actually travel a bit through Babylon up along the Euphrates River to this town called Haran. And his family stops there. But God says, hey, you're not going to stop there. You're actually going to continue on down here. Uh, you're going to go all the way down into this land called Canaan. And you'll notice some of these names here, Shechem, Bethel, Salem. These are all uh, parts of, of what was mentioned in this story. And most scholars would say that this whole journey... In total, if you're traveling 20 miles a day on foot, would take over a month just walking in the middle of the desert. He's got sandals on. He's got family with him. We all know what traveling with family is like. Lot and his wife are there. There's got to be some like hard conversations, some annoyances. right? His feet are starting to get blistered and bloody. He has to give up his control and live with the difficulty of not knowing exactly where he's going to end up but he knows instead that he has something from God, his blessing, his promise of life. Friends, God's call in our lives is not something that we have control over from the start. And it's often not something that we can fully grasp as we go. It's something that surprises us often. Following Jesus doesn't mean you get all of the answers for your life, nor does it mean you know exactly where things are going to end up. It does mean that rather than the assertion of your control... You're receiving the promises of Christ in your life. You're receiving promises of love and grace, of abundant life, of a community of people who get to walk with you in it. And I know this from my own walk, friends. Um, and if you want to chat with me, if you want to get coffee and hear a bit about my story, I'd love to hear your story. But I can, I can attest to this in my life. Even the partially unknown path with a good and gracious God is greater than the well-worn way of the worldly status quo. Even the partially unknown path with a good and gracious God is greater than the well-worn way of the worldly status quo. And I know that we tend to resist this. I tend to resist this in my life often because I love control. We tend to say things like, I'll follow God as long as I still get to spend my money on the thing that I like. 
I'll follow God. I'll be a Christian so long as I can still have my political allegiances uh, dictate how I see the world. I'll be a disciple of Jesus so long as I really just get to hang out with the people that I like, with people that I enjoy being around, with people who talk like me and act like me. And these sorts of caveats are precisely the things that prevent us from following God because they're indicative that we're still trying to grasp at control. They're indicative that we are still the ones on the steering wheel. They're indicative that our control is still the priority in our following of God. You can't have it both ways. C.S. Lewis puts it, I think, really helpfully in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we're trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is remain what we call ourselves to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. When we attempt to both receive the call in our lives, but then still hold on to control over the things that we really like, over the things that our heart and our mind are drawn to, then we're trying to grow wheat from a grass field. It can't happen. That's not how life works. You can't be split here. The life of faith risks the comfort of our control because we choose to allow our lives to be re-sown from beneath the surface, from the very core of who we are. And that sort of control that Abram gives up, it's not just about the destination he gets to. He also has to give up the control of how long this blessing will take. In verse 7, we hear that this blessing is going to extend to all of the families of the earth, which inherently means that Abram won't get to see it. It's going to have to be generations upon generations after he's dead if this comes to fruition. And so Abram not only gives up his control on where they're going, he gives up his control on exactly how long that's going to take. He doesn't get to know exactly when God is going to bless him or how God is going to bless him. He only gets to know that God will. He only gets to know that God's love and grace will sustain him, that this new identity and new story he's stepping into will last. And that's a thing that we have to face on a daily basis. We have to face that our individual actions, the short-term things that keep us tunnel vision, that those actually don't define the bigger story. That God is working in ways well beyond our ability to see. And he's doing that when we change diapers. He's doing that when we wash dishes. He's doing that when we have to deal with death and divorce. He's doing that when our coworkers and our managers aren't really treating us very well. He's doing that when injustice reigns in the world. Those short-term things can distract us from the long-term blessing of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to follow Jesus, questions like this. Do we trust that our lives are being caught up in a story larger than our immediate difficulties? Do we actually believe that our faithful actions in the day-to-day, while they might seem like wandering and mundane, while they might produce uh, blistered feet in our sandals, do we trust that our daily actions are actually contributing to Christ's story of redemption and restoration? Do we really believe that that's happening? Abram believed. He trusted in God's character. 
in the middle of this difficult journey, he chose to say, here's my control. Because my control has led me to Genesis 11. My control has led me to a world that's broken and dark and decaying. And so God, I trust you, the one who started this whole thing, the one who knows what life is, the one who is the very source of life. I trust you to bring it. And I trust that I'm going to walk with you every day and keep experiencing that anew all the time. And so that's the second way that Abram relents. He, he risks his comfort here. He gives up his identity. He gives up his control. But there's a third thing he does here as well. He risks his trust. And this actually is the foundation of everything that Abram does. None of this journey happens unless Abram first trusts that God's going to show up. Notice, this whole thing is based on God's gracious initiative. There's nothing that Abram has done to deserve the blessing and promise of God. Just a chapter before this, he was worshiping other gods. He was living with his family in a way that betrayed what that call of life and flourishing really looked like. There's nothing Abram has done other than trust in the character of God in the middle of a world that's filled with death and decay. And he's trusted that God will bring a son, that God will bring life, and that God will use that son to bless the whole world. And guess what? God shows up. We're going to learn about it as we progress through the story. Abram miraculously gets a son through his formerly barren wife, Sarai. There was no possible way that this was going to happen. It's remarkable. It's incredible. It's something that well, he couldn't ever begin to picture. In the middle of a life filled with death, God brings life forward. But that blessing keeps going. Remember, it has to get to every person of the earth. It can't just stop with Abram's son. And so there's another son, a son in Abram's life that comes generation after generation after generation past him. It's the son of Abram and the son of God. His name's Jesus. And that's where our connection to Abram comes in. See, we're not reading about Abram because of how remarkable a person he was. We're not reading about him because of how moral and pious he was. You will learn in the next couple chapters that Abram was a pretty messed up dude. He didn't do things well all the time. Instead, what we're learning in this story is that God continues to work through those broken lives to bring redemption. That God, in ways that we can't see, is always at work in a different sort of story. And so Abram becomes our example because he chose to have faith in God's character, because he chose, chose to trust that God would bring a son and that God would bless the whole world through that son. And we're left with the same choice, friends, because we live in a world of death and decay. We live in a world that is unfair and unjust. And we're all looking for a life beyond how the world defines us. We're all looking for a life that gets beyond the trappings of our worldly identities. And God has called us to trust in a son as well, just like Abram. God has called us to trust in Jesus, to receive the life that we were made for. Jesus, in this story, he's the culmination of that blessing to the world. This whole thing points to him. Jesus is the one who brings life to all things, who redeems every part of the cosmos so that we can experience life, so that we can proclaim that life to the world, and so that everything in our world can be healed. And so we're called to risk the comfort of our worldly identities, to risk the comfort of our control, and to choose to trust that life in Jesus is really the life we are made for. We don't become Christians to win God's favor. We don't become Christians as a behavior modification tool. We become Christians because we know that the only way to true life is Jesus Christ. We become Christians 
because redemption and restoration are found in trusting the son just as Abram did. That's the story that Abram stepped into. That's the story that each and every one of you are invited to step into. That's the story of what it means to be really, truly human. Friends, let's pray.